welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. Today, we got a Q&A. And uh, for everybody who is a frequent listener or subscriber of the podcast, first and foremost, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening once again. Leave us a five-star rating and review if you have not done so, because if you're here, again, it means you like the, the show, obviously. Um, if you are new to the show, welcome. Listen if through the whole is, thing. If this is your first episode, welcome. Yeah. Uh, do not go way, way, way back, because it sounds horrid compared to now. Actually, you should. It's funny. It's cool to see the evolution. But... Um, we're almost in 800 episodes, so um, it's, it's great of you to join us now if you are new. <laughs> uh, if you enjoy the podcast, by the end of this, leave us a five-star rating review. Help us grow the show and get this free content out to more people. Um, and last but not least, I just want to shout out to everybody listening, whether you are new or not. If you are here, you like free shit, obviously, and we have a lot of free stuff on the website. Head over to tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash blog slash guides slash videos slash podcast. There is an enormous amount of free educational content. Um, no strings attached. Just there to help you. So go oh, check yeah. it all out. Uh, and uh, yeah, let's get into some <coughs> questions, man. I think this is episode 782, man. 782. That's crazy. It will be. That's a lot of episodes, man. Yeah. Should we throw a party when we hit a thousand? Fuck yeah. Be sick. Absolutely. Uh, Why not? Email Emily at TaylorCoachingMethod.com if you'd like to come out and party with us on episode 1000. <laughs> She's just going to get wonder, spammed. Uh, <laughs> wonder if she if she listens to every episode. That'd be I don't so think she does. funny. I don't think she does. I mean. She, I don't know. Like, I got to imagine when she's listening she to um, a, a podcast. Um, well, she runs a lot, so she could listen while she's running. I was yeah. going to say, she's in the car, and she does not want her kids hearing my foul mouth. <laughs> I'll tell you that. I tried to, dude, fuck, speak of foul mouths. Blakely, uh, she said, fuck, yesterday. And I was like, she's at that stage where when she gets in trouble, she gets embarrassed. So she just freezes. Mm -hmm. She got embarrassed in front of her little friend, this uh, girl named Kenzie that lives a couple houses down. <laughs> and when she, when she gets embarrassed, she freezes. She doesn't know what to do. So I like, basically she was, she was being a little brat and I just like corrected her because she was with the kids in our yard and she just froze and just didn't move. To the point where I was like, like, what's going on? And then Kenzie walked in front of her and, like, did her hand in front of her face, like, hello, are you there? Because yeah. Blakely just wasn't moving. And then she just goes, dad, and just starts crying and just uh -huh. runs and hugs me and hides her face because she's embarrassed. Yeah. So hard not to laugh because just when Kenzie was like, hello, like the earth to Blakely. Yeah. But yesterday she said fucking. And, uh. Fucking? Yeah. Like, had kind of a slang to it. No, uh, fu not fucking. Like it was fucking. I didn't know if it was. Just Which is how I know she fuck. heard. No, this is how I know she she heard me, because I I very rarely have the G on anything. I say remembering or like thinking, given. Yeah. You know, I kind of just take the G off. Yep. So I was like, oh, she probably got that one from me. But she, <laughs> she uh, I corrected her and she was crying and we had a talk and everything. But I was telling Shannon and it was so hard not to laugh because. Kids don't know how to properly place curse words in sentences. Definitely. So it makes it so funny. And yeah. it's so hard to correct her when you're trying so hard not what to laugh. What was the sentence? So uh, I told her no juice. Yeah. It was too late. It was like 30 minutes from her bedtime. You're not going to drink much juice. And then went to bed. Yeah. I was like, no juice. It's too late. 
and she was like, she gets in this, she points her finger and she's like, dad, why are you doing this to me? And you're talking and you're a fucking, and it's always, and like, and she just like kind of threw it in there in the middle of things. And I was just like, wait, what? And she stopped and I was like, what did you say? <laughs> and then she went to kind of repeat it. And I was like, mm, don't even do it. Yeah. But it was just hilarious because it was something like that. But the way she threw it in, I was like, that doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Like that's like throwing a random word that. in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which so funny. Um, All she knows is dad said that one time. Yeah. Like if she was like, you're an asshole, then I'd be like, damn, you not only got the curse word, but you know how to say it. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah. (laughs) I'm cursing way too much in front of you. But, uh, oh God, it was funny. So, um, I'm learning my lesson. People, I will try to watch my mouth if you listen to this podcast during. iTunes should have, actually, that's going pretty far. I guess spot. I was going to say Spotify has, you know, like filtered. But I guess they have two versions of the album uploaded for artists, explicit, yeah. edited. Yeah. I was thinking they just, they the software podcast. Yeah, no. All right, cool. Let's get into it, guys. We got the first one coming from CK. It says, you have talked about before on the importance of doing exercises in, in the order they are in the program. But what about the in the order of days? My day one for the program I'm on is better for the end of the week. Is it okay to reorder these days? Sometimes, yes. So, like, for context, why does any of this matter, first and foremost? And this is where, like, this is probably the only topic that we have done a research review with Brandon. Um, and apologies for us not having some of those as well, the guys, our, our schedules have just been nuts. Um, but he will be here next week, so we're going to record one next week. Um, and then we're back on track. But one of the only research reviews I disagreed with him on, and I was kind of upset at the outcome of the study, was that exercise sequencing doesn't matter. To my defense, I think that the study design wasn't done really well. And anybody who is a trainer and is really well-versed at programming will say that the order absolutely matters. Um, I can even think of yesterday when I was doing the squats with the Cambridge bar, um, and all that. And it was funny cause I tagged giant was like saying stuff cause they don't know if they were going to release it, Ouch! <laughs> but I want them to cause it's such a good fucking bar. Yeah. Um, that bent bar. Um, uh, but so like if I were to have done, uh, remember I did uh, leg extensions after the squat. I did those like staggered slider RDL things after squat. If I would have done those things before the squat, there's no way I would have been able to lift as heavy or with as much volume in the squat without getting injured. Correct. Or I just wouldn't have lifted as heavy and I wouldn't have built as much muscle. So to say that there's not an importance of exercise sequencing is just stupid. The study design wasn't very good. So it does matter. That's in the order of the program. Exactly. So um, now when we think of order of days, and that's, and that's exa- essentially that's the reason why exercise sequencing within a session matters is because we're trying to optimize performance, volume, and limit injury potential or risk. So if I do specific exercises before a squat, it might improve my performance, decrease the likelihood of me getting injured or having aches and pains. Um, If I am to put certain exercises before the squat, it might do the opposite. It might decrease my performance and volume, or it might increase my likelihood of injury or pains and aches. So it matters the order of operations so that we can maximize the potential growth, volume, strength, while minimizing injury potential, things like that. When we think of session to session, so throughout the week, it's the exact same thing, really. It's just on a longer time scale, and it's more based on recovery of muscle tissue and joint tendon ligaments. Um, so, for example, 
if I did, I did my squats yesterday, it was like that. Let's say today I had, if I'm following upper lower split, let's say I was like, you know what, uh, it's going to be kind of a weird week, so I'm going to do my second lower body day today. Well, I just did squats yesterday. If I were to go do deadlifts today, I guarantee my deadlifts would suck or I would injure myself because I just squatted super heavy for high volume yesterday. So I don't want to pair two things here. I don't want to pair overloading exercises of the lower body back-to-back days because it's extremely fatiguing on the nervous system and the muscular system. Um, And there's a lot of muscular overlap and joint overlap, right? Um, If I were to do a bench press Monday and overhead press Tuesday, there's a lot of overlap there because both are pressing and both are going to stretch the pec tendon. Both are going to work the scapula in a certain way. Um, It's a lot of overlap. So we decrease performance, increase injury. Same exact thing. It's just that it's not exercise after exercise, it's actually even worse because you could do an accessory overhead press after a bench press and actually be fine. But if you wait until the next day, that DOMS has kicked in, delayed onset muscle soreness. Uh, Now it's even worse. Um, Same thing with lower body, but the injury risk is even higher because load is usually higher on lower body exercises. Um, So there's there's that. Um, Now, most people be like, well, if I'm doing an upper lower program, obviously I'm not going to do upper, lower, lower, upper. It doesn't make sense. You would go upper, lower, upper, lower. But a lot of people do full body. So if I am changing up the exercises or order of days or I just don't know how to properly program and I'm doing a full body program and I have my Monday squats and Tuesday deadlifts, doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't work. Yeah. It, you would want to do day one squats, day three deadlifts. Day two is going to be a bench press of some sort so that you are alternating between upper and lower still on the compound lifts. Yeah. Um, then you got to even think about, so for example, a lat pull down. A lat pull-down, believe it or not, still works your pec and it still works your triceps, even though it's a back and bicep exercise for most people think. You think pulling, you're not doing that. But when you go into that stretched overhead position, you are working those muscles as well. So you got to think about that stuff. So does it matter? Yes. Does it matter as much? Sometimes it matters more. Sometimes it matters less. It really just depends on what we're talking about here. Um, I think that the thing you want to look out for is to make sure that you're avoiding too much overlapping overload on a muscular basis, overlapping movement patterns from a joint perspective, um, and anything that's like overly taxing. So this is also why I consider um, waving intensity throughout the week as well. So like if I'm doing a five or six day program, and let's say it's more of a power building approach, like I'm doing hypertrophy, but I still have the compound lifts in there. I'm probably not going to go like typically push pull legs, let's say you go like bench, so push, pull might be a lat pull down or a T-bar row or bent row or something, and then legs might be a squat. Um, And then we might go overhead press, um, a weighted chin up of some sort, and then a deadlift, right? But those are all lower rep, heavy loading exercises. I probably wouldn't do that. I'd probably go the first three ones, heavy, low rep, the second three ones, lighter, high rep, Mm. because I don't want to overload my nervous system, even though I'm not overloading the muscle that working day to day. I'm still like... Doing heavy, heavy bench press the day after a squat is super fatiguing. And then to do heavy rows the day after that and then go right into more deadlifts or something, like it's just stupid. Um, You got to think about axial loading as well. So axial loading would be loading of the spine. Say that word again. Axial. Axial loading would be like, so if I did a push-pull leg split, let's say say I did push-pull legs, I did bench press. You're not going to axial load. But let's say I did overhead press. I would be because I'm loading the spine a little bit because I'm going overhead and I'm standing. But nonetheless, let's say we just do bench press and then the pull day we start with bent rows. It is 
an axial load to an extent because I'm bent over and I'm rowing heavy, and that's going to be a load on your spine. You're kind of doing an isolated deadlift while you're rowing heavy weights. Then the next day, let's just say I do heavy squats. It's definitely an axial load. I'm putting a bar on my back. People wouldn't think that'd be uh, a higher injury risk because most people will go, well, I'm doing a pull, a row. I'm working my like, lats and traps and biceps, and then I'm going to work my quads. But if you just look at it from this granular perspective of just muscles, you're missing a big picture point of view, right? And, and that is that that is loading my spine and that is loading my spine and I'm doing them back to back day. So I'm going into squats with a vulnerable lower back. Um, so it doesn't matter. Yes, it, it absolutely fucking matters. Yeah. Um, and, it, and the reason I say it depends only because I don't know what program you're on. So, uh, you know, there's certain programs in our app, for example, in the Taylor Trainer app where I might say like, you know what, this one, you could actually switch them around a little bit because like these two days are fine. Like if you want to flip flop these, yeah, they're totally fine to do. You can flip flop those or you probably won't run into too many issues. Or if you're, if you're doing a three day program and you're adjusting, it's probably not the end of the world because you might be adjusting and still have a full day in between each session. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Um, but when you start like moving days around like this one before this one or switching back and forth, that's where I think you can run into some issues. Totally. Yeah. Programs are written in a certain way for a reason. So cool. All right. We will move on to the next question. It comes, uh, let's see here from Carrie says, I want to increase my bench squat and deadlift. I'm a girl. So I know benching, uh, I know benching what the boys do might be unreasonable. Although my goal is to be stronger than most boys. If I have four, maybe five days to work out, how do I structure my workouts to get stronger on those specific lifts? Or do I need to focus one at a time? Your content is my favorite, and I can ever get if I can ever get my shit together, I'm gonna hire you as a coach. <laughs> Touche. Get your shit together. Yeah. Um, all right. So four days is definitely enough. Totally fine. Uh, I would go with the upper lower split. I'd probably I would lean towards like a conjugate style system where you have like upper lower program split throughout the week, but you have like a max effort day and then a dynamic effort day. And so your max effort day is not like you're going for a one rep max. It just means that you are pushing uh, to a higher maximum. So you could do five, three, one, you could do seven, five, three, you can do, you can work to a one rep max, like true West side, uh, like a relative one rep max. I probably wouldn't recommend it. Um, you could do like DeFranco style where he does work to a three rep max. I mean, there's so many ways to do it, but essentially you would have one upper body day where you, you work up to a really heavy load um, on your compound lift, which would be the bench press. And then you'd have one lower body day like that as well. Um, you like to have your, they like to have your max effort days, 72 hours apart to avoid just burning out from your nervous system. Cause you're going really heavy on those days, even on the accessory work. Let's say you have a row, you're still going super heavy with the row. Whereas the dynamic day, you're going to do some plyos. You might do some box jumps. You might do some speed deadlifts. You'll do some like higher reps some walking lunges, dynamic stuff like that. So it's less fatiguing. So you might go upper max effort, lower dynamic effort, upper dynamic effort, and then lower max effort. So you're spreading them out a little bit more to, to maximize recovery. Um, the only downside I see of these is that you really can only focus on two max effort lifts at a time, and then you can rotate them as the blocks go on. So what they did is they almost always just had bench press as the max effort day for upper body day, which makes sense because bench squat and deadlift are the comp competitive lifts, but you still have a squat and a deadlift. So if you're doing heavy squats for your max effort and dynamic deadlifts, speed deadlifts, rack pulls, something like that. Um, it means that after a block or two, you have to swap those and go heavy deadlifts and then like dynamic squats, you know, 
um, which is nothing wrong with that. It's kind of just a block periodization approach if you think about it. Um, I just personally, I like a DUP style more. So I would personally go uh, upper lower split. I would still have one upper body day that is max effort, one lower body or one upper body that's dynamic. And I would do the same with legs, but I would have both leg days have their main compound lift as the uh, as as a max effort style where you're working up to near one rep max effort loads because I think that you just need to train that maximum effort more often in order to see those numbers go up faster. Um, or at all. Yeah. So, um, but nonetheless, I would say upper lower is fine. You just, I mean, literally just you're, as long as you're doing a bench squat deadlift every week and then you just have some kind of linear progression approach, I think that's probably going to be the safest bet. Um, even five, three, one is linear. I mean, the whole point of linear progression is means if you start with seven or six or five or whatever on week one, as the weeks go on, you lower the rep count and you increase the load lifted because you are able to lift more. Even in hypertrophy programs, I think it's the smartest move. So right now for my squats, I'm doing uh, nine, seven, five, three. So like by weeks, by the week. So last week was not four sets, nine. This week was four sets, seven. Um, next week is five by five. And then I'm going to go on five by three. And then I'm going back to four by nine. Everything else is high rep hypertrophy, but I'm just working on progressing those lifts so that I can lift heavier in the higher rep ranges on my accessory work to build more muscle. Cause that's my main goal. Um, but yeah, I think that's the best way to do it. Upper, lower, linear pr- approach to your compounds. Uh, implement accessories and isolation exercises that are going to improve your compound lifts more so than focusing on aesthetic purposes. So I have way more variation inside my programs because I'm trying to maximize hypertrophy in all the muscles. But if I was just focused on strength, I would look at my bench squat deadlift and go, where are my weak points? If my weak point for my upper body was my triceps and my traps, I probably wouldn't waste time doing bicep curls and a bunch of pull downs for my lats and stuff because they're fine. They're not going to improve my lifts. Um, So I'm only focusing on the accessory exercises that are going to boost my weak points and sticking points to allow me to bench squat and deadlift heavier. Totally. So there you go. Gotcha. All right. That's good. We will move on to the next one. We got one from Lyanna. Lyanna, that's how I would pronounce it. It says... What would your top three tips for creating a deficit and adhering to it in the face of one untractable meal a day? I live at home since I'm I'm only 19 and I'm coming from a Maltese family. It's considered, quote unquote, disrespectful for me to cook my own dinner and refuse my parents cooking. How would I work around this as it is not possible for me for to make my own dinner slash plan for it? Damn. Okay, so they're asking how to adhere to a deficit while eating one meal a day? No, no, no. I think she's saying... By eating one cheat meal a day, uh, like untrackable yeah. meal a day. Um, I mean, eating one meal a day is one way to do it. So uh, it's called the OMAD diet. It's actually a thing. One meal a day, OMAD. <laughs> it's literally a thing. Um, oh and it's God. a form of intermittent fasting, basically. Yeah. Um, originally, I mean, I remember fucking 2014 when I really started playing with intermittent fasting. Uh, the warrior diet was a thing. And it was um, 20 hour fast, four hours of eating. So basically, on a 24-hour period, you have a four-hour eating window. Usually, people just ate one meal. You know, some scenarios, people would eat like a snack and then a meal. But essentially, you're going to eat a huge amount of food in one one setting. That's one way to do it. That's very easy. Simple. Um, I think the concept's simple. The concept is the, the, I mean, if we're thinking about on paper, what would be the easiest way to do it? That would be the easiest way to do it. The second easiest way from on a paper perspective is going to be a – because really, 
because let's be real, like if you're really seriously trying to lose fat, it's going to be very difficult. That's a very, not a very practical situation. To be Mentally. In. Yeah. Uh, anything. I mean, if you're subject to eating food that other people cook, you have no, absolutely zero control out of what is in that meal, how many calories it is, how much sugar it is, how much fat it is, how the, the macros changed it, anything. It's not very good. And it's probably not the same meal every day. Exactly. It's not a very good situation. Uh, but the second way would be a modified OMAD, which basically just means like you do the same exact thing, except uh, you have like protein shakes throughout the day. So like pure protein, just a, like basically spike muscle protein synthesis every three to five hours, have a shake, one or two scoop shakes every five hours until that one big meal of the day. Um, the only other thing I could say is like, I wouldn't be able to do this, but you might be able to, because you've been in this scenario for a long period of time. Look at track. I mean, track the meal after you eat it for two weeks, right? Like I can almost guarantee there's going to be a calorie range that those meals tend to be in. Um, even if sometimes it's high fat, sometimes it's high carb, sometimes it's both, um, I guarantee there's probably going to be like, if we think of like, okay, what is a traditional meal? We usually have a protein, a starch and added fat, Tradition. right? If somebody's actually health conscious, veggies get thrown in there. But typically, you know, there's some kind of meat, fish, even in vegan dishes, there's some kind of uh, vegan protein source. There's usually a protein source of some kind. And then there's usually a starch, bread, grains, rice, oats, potato, whatever, you know, um, quinoa, uh, all kinds of shit. Then there's usually an oil that is getting cooked in or it's ghee, it's lard, it's butter, it's olive oil, it's something, coconut oil, there's some kind of oil. So when you look at it like that, it's like every single, you can go back and go, okay, like even if it is a lower protein, here's like the protein of it, here's, you can kind of guess where it's at after you track it and you can track it for a week or two and then you could look at your MyFitnessPal or whatever app you use and you could say, on average, every time I sit down and have a plate, it is usually between 500 to 700 calories. It's usually between 600 to 800 calories. You could guess like that. Then figure out what your maintenance caloric intake is, subtract six or like the average of that, which would be 700, let's say, or, or 600. Or on the high end. Subtract that from that caloric intake and then fill the rest of your day with what you have left. Wouldn't it be safer to subtract more calories? Probably. Okay. Um, and, it, and obviously it'll depend too. Like if you, can, if you can track over weeks and you just notice like every time it's super low in protein, then I probably would subtract on the lower end actually because then you can fill those calories up with extra protein, you, you know? Um, but nonetheless, like you could literally, that's exactly what you would do, you know? And I would even say like, that would probably work pretty well. And what I do on a Saturday when it's kind of like my free meal is I don't track that last meal, but I typically eat just protein and if I can get like veggies in obviously, but mainly just try to stick with proteins throughout the day. That's like the biggest thing in like lower fat, lower carb, high vegetables if I can. And if I have anything outside of, just greens or protein, it's going to be a starchy carbohydrate because I still am going to train, right? And I know that um, it's less calorically dense. Fats are super high calorie compared to, they're twice as many calories per gram, uh, more than twice, um, compared to carbohydrates, and they're easier to store as fat for the body. So totally. I'd much rather fill my diet with protein and then a little bit of carbs if I'm training during the day and need some extra fiber. Um, and then I just have plenty of calories left over at night. Totally. And just be mindful at the meal. Yeah. I mean, that's the best, your best chance you know best be, scenario that'd be rough yeah all right uh cool that was good for the analyst the thing to think about too is it's just portion control at the end of the day too 
So there's plenty of people over the years who had no nutrition knowledge. And before evidence-based coaching and nutrition was a thing, they just ate less at each feeding. It was like, okay, here's my day of eating. I'm just going to take this plate and I'm going to eat 75% of it instead of 100% of it. So every time you go to make your plate, you just take a little bit off of it. Mm. That right there would create a deficit. So if you ate healthy, high protein, all that in all your meals, and then you just made sure that you ate 75% of what you normally eat in that meal, you would literally create a deficit. That's portion control. It's more of a mind mental game than anything else. You'd lose weight. Totally. So, Cool. Let's move on. We got one from Addy. I started working a nine-to-five desk job straight out of college in 2020, and it's the most draining situation I've ever been in. Wow. I've always been active and worked out, found my love for fitness after after school. I am now working as a group trainer as a side gig on top of my nine-to-five just because I love it enough to spend my free time helping others do in their journey. I know I want to shift my career to the fitness industry full-time, but don't know where to start as this group class won't provide me what I need to supplement my current income. Where do you think I should start? Can I build my own brand without proper professional experience to back my knowledge? If not, what are some pros and cons to look for when seeking new training positions? It's a packed question. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually a pretty simple answer, to be honest with you. Um, Read. You, you, number one... It's like the whole move the dirt thing that we always yeah. say at the team, you know. Then the day you doing the boot camp stuff, that's you moving the dirt. Yep. At a certain point, that's what allows you to do higher end training one on one with people or whatever it may be. Um, number two, who you are as a professional, your boot camp instructor, whatever, doesn't dictate your knowledge base. What you teach people dictates your knowledge base. The content you create dictates your knowledge base. Okay. What you have in your fucking head dictates your knowledge base. You Ex- know, experience. Yeah. Experience is different. You need experience, but... But I mean, like, the experience you gain creates your knowledge. 100%. And what you read, what you study, who you work with, if you have a coach, things like that. So I think the more you start creating with the knowledge you have and the things you're studying and taking in, the more people will see that you're knowledgeable. You know, there's a, there's a lot to say about, you know, at the end of the day, if you're producing content, if you're expressing your, uh, your ability to teach people for free through content, through medium, through, um, talking to people after class, stuff like that. It's very rare that people are going to come up to you and be like, well, that's all great, but how many certifications do you have? Or, but you're just a boot camp instructor. They're just going to say, holy shit, that's really fucking helpful. Yeah. And then they're going to go do something with it and it's going to help them. And they're going to be like, that person is really smart and they help me. Yeah. They don't care about anything else. I literally never get asked what my credentials are ever, never. Because Man. they do matter, don't get me wrong, but everyday people will assume that I have high credentials because the, the information I provide them with is not only very sound, like when you hear it, you're like, okay, it's clearly right, like you, it, it makes sense, but it comes off authentic, right? Um, and it, it, when I talk about what I know, it's usually has some kind of story element to it. So you know that there's experience with it. It's not just me regurgitating information out of a book. Totally. Um, so I think that like, number one, you just got to keep getting out there, talking, speaking, creating content, teaching people. The opportunity to work with people one-on-one will present itself at some point, whether it's in that gym or another gym. And if it's in another gym, then start browsing other gyms while you are a boot camp instructor. No matter what people want, coaches who have experience working with people and you're doing that right now so use that as a way to get in into the door of another gym if you need to so that you can then actually teach or or uh go from group large 
group setting to more of a one-on-one private setting, right? Because then you have more of an individual um, relationship with the client, but also you're able to individualize the process and control their results more. If I have a group of 100 people who I can't guarantee are going to be at the next class, I can give you a good workout. Yeah. That's it. If I have a client, I'm going to get you amazing results because we have a one-on-one relationship. It's way different. That's what's going to develop a lot of experience and word of mouth for you. Otherwise, people are going to just constantly say like, God, that, that one instructor has a lot of energy. I can't remember their name, but they were great. You know, and that's, that's really, true. Yeah. It's really what it is. However, you can talk to all those people, but you have to initiate it. The amount of people, that's exactly how I went from group instructor to having a lot of clients was I would just pick somebody every single class that I was going to talk to. And then they became familiar with who I was and I would just keep talking to them and teaching them and helping them until it became a one-on-one client coach relationship. And then eventually I was like, hey, I have too many one-on-one clients. I can't do the boot camp stuff anymore. Um, so there's that. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, just keep studying. Keep, you can't be in a hurry for this, yeah. you know? I mean, that's it's a good quote, yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it sucks. I wish I wish there was a faster way to do it. But at do the end you, of the though? Because I think if there's a faster way to do it, the wrong people might be in 100%. it. 100%. I definitely don't wish that. Okay. But um, if, if you don't like to hear that or if, if you – yeah, I mean, if you don't like the other, then that's a fact. You can get a different career. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's uh, yeah. just something that is what it is. Yeah, cool. All right, let's move on to the next question. We got one from Beatrice Moore. It says, "I am 44 old female going through menopause, and no matter how well I eat and exercise, I'm still gaining weight. What's the best advice you can give me for me to you can give me to start losing instead of gaining?" This is going to be very quick, easy, and I'm sorry that it is going to be so simple that it seems too good to be true and probably a little bit frustrating. Create a calorie deficit. The best advice I can give you is to find a sustainable way to create a calorie deficit. Most likely periodize that over time as well because you don't want to be in a calorie deficit all the time, um, but you need to be in a calorie deficit most of the time until you reach your goal. And then from there, you can reverse out of it to try to be at maintenance. Uh, but the harsh reality of, of some of these situations, especially when you're going through menopause um, or if you have PCOS, if you have hypothyroidism, when you are in the process of trying to lose weight and those specific symptoms or situations are heightened, you are probably going to have a slightly slower metabolic rate. Your body is going to fight back with fat loss and you are probably going to have to create a bigger calorie deficit, which means that you have to prioritize good food. And if you look at all the things where it's like, infographics of best diet for PCOS, best diet for menopause, best. They're all really filling whole foods. That's all it is. They're, fi- they're foods that have a lot of micronutrients, a lot of fiber, a lot of lean protein. In other words, they're foods that are very filling and low calorie that are healthy. <laughs> so all you have to do is choose lower calorie foods so that you can feel like you're eating more because it's voluminous, but you're getting a calorie deficit accomplished more easily and consistently. That's really it. I mean, you, I mean, at the end of the day, like, there's no fucking tricks to this. There's no detox. There's no nothing. And it's frustrating for people because they're like, well, just give me the one, like, the one diet. Do I got to do this kind of? No. You have to do whatever diet is going to help you adhere to the calorie deficit better, period. Explain those voluminous foods a little bit. So we actually have a blog on this. We can link it in the, the podcast. It's called, like, uh, I think the number's 13, but I don't know. But, like, 13 low-calorie foods that fill you up more or something like that. Um, Rose wrote. It's really good, but it has some recipes in there and stuff as well. But like, for example, romaine lettuce. You can eat a whole fucking tub of romaine lettuce and you'll have like five calories. So having like a very big salad bowl with like chicken and throwing some tomatoes in there and throwing cucumbers and whatever else you like in a salad, 
those are all foods that are very, very low calorie, but you got to chew them. You got to eat them. By the time you get down the bowl, you're full, but you had barely any calories at all. So you can have a whole fucking bowl, a huge bowl of salad, right? And it would be equal to like a fun size Snickers bar. Like I'm probably exaggerating a little bit here, but like literally, I mean like probably a regular size Snickers bar, a couple, few hundred calories and full size Snickers bar is probably like 300 calories. Um, except the, the bowl of salad has tons of micronutrients, has healthy foods and it has fiber. It has protein. Those things are to fill you up more and it's the same amount of calories. So like choosing foods like that help you adhere just normal diet hacks that are going to help you adhere. But the, the, it all really boils down to a calorie deficit. And I, I know people hate to hear that because it's just so simplistic, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's literally the, the process of losing weight comes down to a calorie deficit. And when you are going through menopause in the minutes of it, when you have PCOS, all these different things, a lot of times it just, it's just more difficult to accomplish because you need a bigger calorie deficit than you would think. So you go to an online calculator and you're punching your, your numbers and you're like, why isn't this allowing me to lose weight? It's because that's not accurate to who you are. There's no, so like when you do an online calculator, most people know this, we have one on our website and you can type it in and it gives you your BMR and then you use an activity multiplier. So that's based on your age, weight, height, all that stuff and how active you are, right? There is no menopause multiplier. There's no PCOS multiplier. There's no uh, hormonal dysfunction multiplier and things like that. We just have to assume that, you know, you're going to have to kick another 10, 15% off your diet in so calories. What, like, I know there may not be an answer to this, but what would be the best way to compensate it with that calculator if you had that? 10 to 15%. Drop oh. another 10 to 15% calories. There you go. Yeah. So, um, like, literally, it just means, like, you figure out your deficit with the calculator and then chop another 10 to 15% off. Percent. Yeah. Of total calories off via carbohydrate or fat. There you go. Um, And that's really what it is. And and like, I hate to say it, but like a lot of times it's accountability. A lot of times it's, it's obviously figuring out the right foods, having support system, all those kind of things. But all the things that we implement in coaching, like not to have a shameless plug, but like shameless plug, like that's why it works is because we are setting you up for success by using the right tools and then making sure you're accountable to it, doing it every single week, week after week. That's really what it boils down to. Um, and there's also a lot of people who would ask this question and they're not even tracking yet. And I'm like, okay, we'll start there, you yeah. know? So, um, you don't have to go from zero to a hundred, but step-by-step step, that's the, that's what you got to do. Totally. Okay, cool. Uh, we will move on to the next one. It comes from Ilona. Is this your mom? Says, I read it and thought so for a sec. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> and it said she was 40 something. I was like, nope. <laughs> All right. It says it is from Ilona. Um, it says hi, Cody and team. Firstly, Thank you for such an informative podcast. I'm enjoying every single one of them. I'm a 40-year-old female with 17 years of training experience. I absolutely love lifting weights, and I have been exposed to a variety of programming when it comes to hypertrophy training. (laughs) I don't want to grow my underbody, but would like to work on my lower body a bit more and develop my quads, hams, and glutes. I got... Upper body? Just I don't want to grow... Grow upper body. Oh, I thought you said under body. Oh. And right. then you said lower body. I was like, wait, no, what are we up, talking about? Here? Upper body. Got it. I've got two jobs, so I can only fit four training days a week. How can I split this training? My thinking is three lower body days to allow more volume and one upper body day to maintain my current muscle mass. How would I program the upper body? Also, when I try to add muscle mass to my lower body, do I need to be in a calorie surplus or will maintenance calories do? Um, few things to kind of touch on here. Number one, I, I always like to preface this, um, answering this type of question 
for any body part, any person, male or female, 20 or 40 or 50, anything like that, right? For everybody who listens to this, building muscle is not easy. So I, I always say this because a lot of times people think they need to specialize and they're not advanced enough to do so. And so, for example, if somebody's like, I really want to build X, Y, Z body parts, we need to train at least four days a week. I'm very, I'm, 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 unless you're brand new to lifting, I'm going to say that pretty confidently. But that means like you got to do a lot. Yeah. Like it's not like, like I think people go, well, I would do an upper lower body, upper lower program, but I don't want my upper body to just blow up. It ain't going to happen. Like it's very difficult to build muscle. Now, doesn't mean you can't preferentially put more volume to the places you want to grow just to make sure that that grows more. I think you could do an upper lower program and I don't think your upper body is going to grow a ton. I think you would have to push a lot of volume to do so. Um, you'd have to be in a calorie surplus, most likely, yes. And recover. Um, and what? And recover. And recover properly. But I do think there is value into doing a three-day legs, one-day upper body, like you said. However, I wouldn't do a full third leg day. So the way I would program this is pretty simple. And this works in the reverse as well. If somebody's like a dude that's like, I just don't give a shit about growing my glutes and hamstrings at all, then I would go three upper body days, one leg day, except the upper body day would still cater to a little bit of your lower body that is um, going to be important for performance and health and posture. So like what I would do here is like lower, upper, lower, and then the the fourth day would be essentially in your case legs, but like the one to two muscle groups that you really care about. So let's say it's glutes, mainly all glutes, maybe a little bit of quads, mainly all glutes, a little bit of hamstrings, or maybe it's quads you want to build, mainly all quads, a little bit of glutes. And then some posterior chain on the upper body, back, uh, rear delts, traps, lats, stuff like that, because those are really important for shoulder health. They're important for improving your lifts on the lower body as well. They're important for posture. Um, and again, doing, hitting your back twice a week is not going to blow up your back, especially if the first upper body day is spread between, cause you would have to balance the upper body in that day. You'd be hitting chest, shoulders, triceps, biceps, traps, lats, rhomboid. Like there's a lot of upper body musculature. So to get everything done on one day, you're going to get barely anything of it at all, which is fine because you're not trying to grow your upper body. It's just a maintenance day. But then you should have that fourth day. You should touch on the back a little bit just for posture and performance needs. Then the rest of the day can be spent on the one or two muscle groups on your lower body that you want to add extra volume to because you already have two other lower body days that week as well. And there's less lower body musculature to worry about. Um, now, do you need to be in a calorie surplus? Um, do you need to be? No, you can do it at maintenance. Uh, should you be? Probably. Um, I think the only way to really get away with doing it at maintenance is either A, you're, you're pretty new to lifting, so you're within your first couple years of lifting, or B, you have a really high volume training program. So if somebody is doing a lot of volume and they're eating at maintenance, they're just barely able to recover, you could probably grow. It's going to be at a snail's pace. You're just going to be like growing at a, at a slow rate. Um, for most people that for most humans in general, they're just too impatient for that. And I would agree. I think like even, even for me, for somebody who, who prefers to stay leaner, it's just difficult to go to the gym all the time, wanting muscle growth and barely seeing if it's happening. And it's happening at such a slow rate that you actually don't even know if it's really happening yeah. because you're at maintenance. So it is actually helpful to implement surpluses, even if it's just for a few months, I would say a few months is the bare minimum. You, usually you need like six plus months of like dedicated surplus and hard training in order to grow. But even if you have like a three month stint of pushing the volume and the calories, trying to build as much muscle as possible, and then you go into like a mini cut and a maintenance and so on and so forth, and you periodize it throughout the year. 
I think you'll be fine. But most of the time, you should probably be in a surplus um, or even have surplus days. So, like, let's say you're training four days a week. Maybe you're at maintenance on your off days and you're in a surplus on your lifting days. That's still going to be a little bit more helpful than just always being at maintenance. I would even argue that if your weekly caloric intake was at maintenance, but your off days were in a slight deficit and your lifting days were in a slight surplus, even that would maybe be potentially beneficial to building more muscle than just being straight at maintenance because you're trying to push totally. as many calories in around that 24-hour window of, of training. Um, but, yeah, that's how I'd break it down. Totally. That's good. <clears throat> All right, so next one, we have one more here coming from Betty. It says, can you explain the difference in programming between RIR versus RPE? Why would someone program six reps at reps at rep? Six reps at rep eight versus six reps at RI. She probably meant to put RPE in it. Probably auto corrected her. Versus six reps at RIR two. Wouldn't these? Wouldn't this be the same thing? Yeah. So I'm just gonna break this all down. Um, first and foremost, shameless plug. We have a YouTube video on this. Um, I believe it's out by the time this airs. Correct. Yeah, it should be because it's going out tomorrow. Yep. Okay. No, so Friday, but either way. Either way. Um, go check that out. YouTube.com slash Cody McBroom one, the number. Um, we just did a video on RIR. I touch a little bit on RPE, but mainly it's about RIR because I think RIR is a better system. So brief synopsis of what this is. Um, RPE is rate of perceived exertion. RIR is reps in reserve. Rate of perceived exertion was originally created for endurance athletes, and it was a way for them to gauge their heart rate and their intensity and their efforts while running a long-ass distance. So... It was like, basically, our RPE went like 5, 5.5, 6, 6.5, and then went all the way up to like 28.5 or something like that, or 30 or whatever. It was, I think it was a weird number, but they did half increments. It was way more complex, and it was because these people could be running for hours, right? And they had to be able to gauge consistently throughout it what RPE they're at so they could calculate, can they sustain this for the amount of time that they need to go based on previous practice races and stuff like that. Then... I believe it was Mike Toucher, uh in the, in the powerlifting world took it and made it RPE scale for, for powerlifting, and it was up to 10. Same idea, um, but your final rep, what is the RPE on that? Um, and it was just a way to gauge your effort. And then I believe Mike Isertel was the first one to create RIR, but I could be mistaken there. Um, nonetheless, it was kind of the same thing for the bodybuilding world. However, I think most people in powerlifting, lifting, resistance training, anything, bodybuilding, whatever, use RIR mainly now because it's just way easier to use. Um, and it's the inverse. So if you have an RPE of eight, that's an RIR two, technically. Um, you could It's semantics. You could be arguing it because it really depends too. Like in powerlifting, for example, an RPE eight, I could have two more reps in the tank, but if we're going off of effort and intensity, you know, are we talking about absolute failure? Are we talking about technical failure? Are we talking about like good clean form reps like it's it's all it's semantics but it's all different whereas rir is pretty cut and dry zero rir means you you fucking failed you're done you have no more left in the tank gun to your head done uh rir2 would mean you have two reps in the tank which would means that you have two reps left before gun to your head done right so and i say gun to your head because it's that serious i think a lot of people go oh that was rir2 I've done this. That's a RIR2, and I easily had four or five left in the tank. So a lot of people don't actually know how to gauge it, which is why it's important to go to failure first so you can see what that feels like. And failure on a one rep max versus a three rep max versus an eight rep max versus a 10 rep max versus a 20 rep max, they're all different. So if you're trying to gauge your RIR for a set of 15 on something, I think you should go to failure on week one of your program to see what it's like. Because if you've only gone to failure 
on a one rep max trap bar deadlift, it is completely different than doing a 20 rep max leg press or a 15 rep max, uh, or sorry, sorry, zero RIR leg press to 20 or a 15 rep RIR zero on a leg extension or chest fly, shit like that. Um, failure is coming about from different reasons. Like we have failure because mentally you can't do anymore. Um, which usually comes about more so like on 20 rep sets, assault bike intervals, stuff like that. We have, um, like literal central nervous system style, like strength, like failure, which is more like one to three rep. Like I can't hold the bar. It's too heavy. Um, I'm not exhausted. I just, I, it's too heavy. Yeah. Then there's like the eight to 10, which is like a combination of like the lactic acid, your grip, your muscles giving out, things like that. Your form breaks. But testing these different ranges out of rep ranges with different RIRs is important before using the system. But essentially, um, I think RIR is better. It's just easier to understand. I mean, like if I have 10 reps left or if I have a 10 rep set or an eight rep set or a six rep or a 15 rep, if I'm an RIR one, I go until I literally have one rep in the tank. Which is cool too, because if we think about what creates the best results, especially from a muscle perspective, but this is kind of leans into strength as well, it's effort. So is a two rep max better than a three rep max? No. Is a eight rep set for hypertrophy better than a 10 rep or a 12 rep? No. They all can create the same. But is a RIR1 versus RIR4 better for hypertrophy? Yes. So if you did a RIR4 for 12, even though that's more of a hypertrophy high volume zone versus a RIR1 on a six rep set, which is not the best range for hypertrophy, you'd still probably build more muscle at a six because when you get that close to failure, you create more mechanical tension and you're lifting a heavier load, which creates more absolute volume and tonnage, both of which are way more important for hypertrophy. So when we go into the weeds, we realize that effort and your proximity to failure, well, effort is the most important thing for hypertrophy because when we have a higher level of effort, we are going to accumulate more mechanical tension and more total volume, both of which are the two main drivers of hypertrophy. RAR is a way, it's a system to understand your proximity to failure and your proximity to failure is the literal way to gauge how close you are to failure. And the closer you get to failure without actually failing and hurting yourself, the better all those other things are going to be. So that's why we use it. RIR is just the inverse of RPE. It's a little bit easier to understand because if you're doing a set of 10, it's easier to know you have one rep left before you're done failing or versus RPE eight. It's like, I think I'm at 80% of my full effort. You know, it's, it's very, it's difficult to gauge. Yeah. Um, so those are the differences. The reason we use it is because it's a way for us to systemize our approach to making sure somebody's getting close enough to failure and keeping their effort as high as possible to maximize results while doing a training program. Um, all of our programs in the Taylor Trainer app use it. Um, so taylortrainerapp.com, you can go there, sign up, check out all of our programs written by me, delivered into your uh, pocket of, uh, of your phone all the time. Um, all of those use RPE and RIR together. So sometimes I use both because there are still some people who prefer RPE, but we use that in all of our programs because it just makes a lot of sense. Kind of old school, isn't it? It is kind of old school now because RIR is just becoming more important. But I say old school relatively. I mean, like they ju- we, I, I think the first time I used RPE was just a couple years ago. Oh. You know what I mean? So it's not like it's, it's a new concept. But yeah. I mean, RPE and endurance world, very old. Uh, RPE and strength sport, not that old. Totally. So, um, but... Yeah, so uh, real quick, guys, uh, once again, leave us a five-star rating review if you enjoyed the podcast. Make sure you check out our sponsors. Uh, that is Giant Lifting. You can use the coupon code TCM5 and or click the link in the description of this podcast to go get some discounted uh, weights, equipment, all that stuff. They are the most trusted. My entire gym is filled with their shit, so I can't speak highly enough of them, their customer service, all that. Um, and last but not least, 
our good friends over at First Form. Firstform.com slash tailored coaching method. We appreciate you guys for listening and we'll catch you next time.